woman. The Bible assumes that we are all relational beings, relational with each other on a horizontal level and vertically in relationship with God. We are also embodied beings. We have physical bodies, but the body is not an end to itself. It's a means to an end. The end is healthy relationships with each other and with God. We are, used, we are to use our bodies in these healthy relationships. Now, note I said relationships, not necessarily sexual relationships. So sexual relationships are an important part of it, but they are not the only kind of relationship we ever had. And then when we look at it in Genesis, God created them male and female. We are irrevocably gendered beings. We are male or female. You know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam was just such a perfect male. Like, he was like this really perfect, like perfect six-pack ever. I mean, like he had to run around all over the garden picking fig leaves to cover his adornments. And Eve, she was just so perfect, no boob job, no Botox, nothing perfect. So physically, they were perfect. They were so sure who they were, male and female. Their roles were fixed. They knew who they were. They knew what they were to do. It was beautiful. They were complementary. This was before the fall. And then God gives them a command, a blessing. He tells them, be fruitful and multiply. So, being fruitful and multiplying, the last time I looked, even in this time of in vitro fertilization, does involve sex. And isn't God a wonderful God? He gives us the blessing of having fun when we have sex. I put it to you that if having sex was as boring as doing your tax return, very few of us would be here. I mean, aren't we blessed that making love is actually so much of fun? So God gives us this pattern, gives Adam and Eve the pattern, and then he says, this is so good. And then we move on to God's pattern for the union. So here we are, created male, female, relational beings, gendered beings, sexual beings, and God gives us this pattern for a relationship, a marriage in the Garden of Eden. He brings Eve to Adam, and Adam is sort of super, super excited. I mean, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, excited. Every one of you who's married, ladies, I know your husband sort of said that to you on the honeymoon night. And then we have how the man would leave his parents and be united and be in one flesh. And that is a very special, and we'll come back to this, and we'll look at it. What does it mean to be one flesh? What does it mean to be naked and no shame? See, this is truly a covenant commitment which was set right there in the Garden of Eden. So it's beautiful. It is a blessing. But there is something we need to remember, and that is good gifts from God can become idols. They can become little gods. And we need to remember that when it comes to sex because, you know, we are not supposed to love anything in the world around us. Our love is to be for God because the lust of the eye and the flesh, this is idolatry. And we need to be really, really careful.
don't idolize the good gift of sex. You see, our lives, including our sex lives, you know, it's hard for us to imagine that something that is so grunting and sweaty and earthy can actually be to the glory of God. But it is. You know, the Bible is actually one of the most sexy books ever. I've read heaps of books, sex books. And the Bible is a great sex book. You know, we've just talked about the beginning. Adam and Eve. Marriage. Sex. The Bible ends in Revelation with a marriage. I mean, Christ coming back down to earth, getting his church. What a wedding. What a honeymoon. What a consummation. Right in the middle, oh, the sealed section that you're going to be studying for the next four weeks. What a sexy book that is. So, sex is a gift. It's a beautiful gift, but not to be idolized. We need to keep our perspective because we are called to be different. And in Romans, you've read this, I'm sure, it tells us, be in the world, but don't conform. So we will be looking in a little while about the world and how the world tells us to deal with sex. But we must remember that we are to be countercultural. You are the princesses and kings and queens of heaven. We are called to be countercultural in the way we live. Our lives, whether we are single or we are married, our lives must bring glory to God. And whether you're married or whether you're single, you are a sexual being can't get away from that. You were born a sexual being and you will die a sexual being. So our sex life, single or married, will bring glory to God. As our marriage, we will epitomize Christ and the church. As singles, we will follow the model par excellence of Jesus Christ and maybe Paul, who was single men. And so whatever life we live, we are bringing glory to God. And I want to mention that, you know, in any group this big, there will be people who maybe came late to Christianity or maybe, you know, had some sins committed, sexual sins committed against them. And we must remember that there's nothing to feel dirty or ashamed about this when we become Christians because we are a redeemed people and there is no sin sexual or otherwise, that cannot be redeemed. And, you know, in 1 Corinthians 6:11, Paul, having listed all the faults of the church, he finishes off by saying, that's how some of you were. And so even when, you know, whatever your sexual orientation or sexual behavior might have been, so some of you were. But we are a redeemed people. But keep in mind that there is no room for complacency. Sex is powerful. We need to accept that. It is a powerful, powerful force. Just earlier today, I had a call from a 17-year-old young man who said that he had been watching porn from the time he was 11 years old. He was at a meeting when I spoke to youth, and he called me up, and we had a long talk. Because sex is a very, very powerful thing. We need to understand it so we can take charge of it and then direct that energy to the glory of God. You know, you're going to be studying Song of Songs, and in Song of Songs 8.6 it tells us, love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blaze.
blazing fire, like a mighty flame. That's from Song of Songs. That's from the Bible. You know, Jesus sexual, talks about sexual immorality as a sin of the heart. And in Acts, in, in um, speaking, writing to the Gentiles, you know, the immorality is equated to idolatry. You know, don't eat food given to idols and don't be sexually immoral. That's the binding we have. And through the Bible, you can see how sexual purity is so, so very important. So, with that background, let's get into some sexology. Okay, God's plan for good sex is played out in our brain. The research on brain chemistry comes from the laboratories of Dr. Helen Fisher and others in America, and based on functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is not new, but the use of it to study sexuality and emotions is fairly new, they propose a three-stage sequential brain model. We talk about sex drive, which motivates general sexual desire, romantic love, also known as limerence, which is associated with a preference for a specific partner, and then partner attachment or bonding, which enables a long-term relationship, a bonding to one person. So let's look at each of those in, in some detail. Brain wiring for sexual desire, a drive. Sexual desire is a testosterone-powered drive deep in what is called the limbic system, for those of you who are medics. And this part of our brain is deep there. It's one of those emotional brain bits, really, really deep there. And it's fired by a cocktail of neurochemicals. See, sexual desire is a non-specific appetite. It's an urge, a need. It's like I want sex, you know, that kind of broad desire. Then what we know is that the teen brain, and I'm going to, I don't have a lot of time here, but I want to tell you this. The teen brain is what we call a work in progress. There is a gap between the bubbling up of the sexual and emotional feelings, which happen early in adolescence, in puberty, and the actual control part of the brain, which is sort of here, the frontal and parietal lobe, which doesn't mature till about 20, 22, 24. So there is a gap when teenagers, adolescents, and I describe that in my book, are sexual, emotional beings, but their control systems, it's not that they're totally out of control, although it does feel like that to us parents, I'm sure, but the controls are still developing. And there is that need during that time for boundaries and guidance. This is where parents are so important, as are youth workers and churches, because you really are the external control system for teen brains, for teenagers. And I'm happy to talk more if you want to know. Now, once you're adults, this neuroplasticity of the brain remains. So, what turns you on as an adult, what you desire is affected by what you feed into your brain. 
Now, there is a science of what we call epigenetics, which means you start with a genetic pattern, but everything that feeds in, even from the time of when you're in the uterus of your mom, is going to affect how these genes are played out. And so, for children, everything that is fed into the brain is going to affect their sexual and other behaviors. And as adults, what you feed your brain will affect how you behave. And sexual desire is one of those things that is easily rewired. Pornography rewires the brain. And I'll come back to that briefly in a while. Is it any wonder that in Philippians 4.8 we hear from Paul, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, think about those things. I mean, now we know that there's a brain chemistry behind it. I mean, it's amazing. There's a congruence between brain chemistry and what the Bible says. Surprise! I mean, you know, that's amazing. And that is so true, that what was said there biblically, what you feed your brain on, is going to affect. You see, in God's plan, desire is powerful. It is also purposeful. It is a good thing when coordinated with the other aspects of sexual function. Is it any wonder that in Song of Songs, three times we read, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love. So don't awaken it till the right time. Because desire is powerful. It is a very powerful emotion. And that is why the world uses desire so much in advertising. This is selling deodorants. And it says, balls, nobody wants to play with them when they're dirty. I mean... Oh, I love it that nobody laughed. I mean, it's like, don't laugh. Okay, so you may laugh. And can you see the sexualization, the commodification of sex there? You know, it's like you've got a desire to be clean. You've got to have desire your balls to be clean. So, you know, we get a pretty sexy girl to advertise it. And we use it to sell cars. I mean, my apologies if any of you got a Volvo parked out there. But I think it says there we just as excited as you. And, um, yeah, it's sort of a, just a handbrake, huh? So, sexual desire used as to sell, used as a commodity to sell cars. I mean, children used to sell children's clothes. Can you kind of see the message here? I mean, she's there. The boys are just so cool looking aside. These are kids' clothes that are being sold. And adults' jeans. I mean, this is sexual desire. The world will tell you it's a need. You've got to use it to sell things. You know, this is what it's all about. And this is my absolute favorite, which I'm sure some of you would have seen this. You know the message there. You know, it says bonk longer. For those of you who may not know what bonk, it just means sexual intercourse, you know, having sex. And you know what the implication is there? If you want to have a longer sex, 
we can medicate you. If you want a bigger penis, we can do surgery on you. You want to look, have your, if you're a woman and you want your genitals to look like the porn star, we can do labioplasties and vaginal reconstructions. Plastic surgeons tell us that girls as young as 13 and 14 are going in and asking for their labia to be surgically changed because they don't look good. I, had, I was interviewing some young schoolgirls, year 9, 10, when I was doing my teen sex book, and one of them said that a friend of hers was with her boyfriend, and the boyfriend freaked because she had pubic hair. Now, after I got over the desire to sort of, you know, what's your, what are you doing at uh, year nine, nude with a boyfriend, but it just, the boys watch porn, and all they know is porn stars who look like prepubescent girls, and that's the image that we are building into our young people's minds. So, the worldview, the narcissistic, individualistic worldview tells us that repressing desires is unhealthy. I'm less than human if I don't have sex. Sex is about my pleasure, my happiness. Sex is about meeting my rights. I have rights. And therefore, if I want to do something, I want to do anything to fulfill my sexual desires, then the worldview would say, if I don't have sex, it's like I'm starving. It's self-starvation, not having sex. But when sex is a blessing and not the only blessing, but one of the many blessings that we as the children of God have, then we can live a full life, whether we have sex as married men and women, or whether we don't have the physical intimacy of sex as a single man or woman. We can live a full life. And, you know, the world will tell us that self-control is a swear word. Self-control in sex? Why? It's out there, isn't it? Just go out, get it. But self-control is part of, you know, it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. And in 1 Peter we read, be alert and sober because the devil prowls like a roaring lion. You see, sexual temptation is like that when it comes to desire. And you know, there's no boundaries in desire these days. I don't have time to go into these in detail. But pornography, pornography today is at over $10, $15 billion industry. The average age at which young people are exposed to porn in Australia is 11 and 12 years old. Porn rewires our brains. It makes young men and older men see women as porn stars, not as women created in the image of God. It makes women, we call it the raunch culture, see themselves as empowered only when they are sexual. Porn, pornography is a frightening curse of our generation, and I'm using that word very deliberately because it is. 
homosexuality with the marriage debate, and again, I'm happy to talk about gender in question time, but that's one of these other no boundaries. I want to have sex with whomever I want to, whenever I want to. Paraphilias, variant sexual appetites. You know, in Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, we, it talks about God giving people over to lustful desires. And sometimes when I'm a sexologist, most of my friends are a little weird. And, um, you know, I sometimes talk to people and I work in the sexual health clinics sometimes. And I think, you know, we are living some the Romans 1 lifestyle. And we just need to be so, so aware of it. And again, if any of you wants to know more about pornography, the Covenant Eyes website has some really good information on the whole statistics and, you know, the effect on the brain. But today, I talk to young people, especially young boys, and they use pornography as a sex education tool. And then you talk to young women and they say all their, all their boyfriends watch porn. And you talk to adults, almost, I would say 75% of couples who come also sex therapists who come to me would have some aspect of porn in their background. So much so that now it's just part of a normal history that we ask about pornography. And then of course, pornography by using the same wiring as love can lead to addiction. So that's desire. We said desire, romantic love and attachment. Let's fall in love. Falling in love, a brain wiring for limerence, romantic love, driven by neurochemicals. Dopamine, remember when you fell in love? Those of you who have been in love are in love. It's a dopamine-driven, passionate motivation. You know that passion? You walked into church, there was a sermon on the crucifixion, but you looked across the church and there she was and, you know, nothing else mattered because you were so exhilarated. That's dopamine. And then there's norepinephrine, which is your... A sort of stress hormone, that's the one that gives you palpitations every time he walks in or she passes, your pupils dilate, you break out in a sweat. And serotonin levels going down the same as happens in obsessive compulsive behavior. You are obsessed with this person. And the emotional happenings in your brain suppress judgment and rational thought. You thought love was blind? Guess what? It is. You know, the time you thought, what does she see in him? She's not seeing. That's really what is happening. You see, it's wonderful. It's like a little mini addiction. And it has a purpose. Because, you see, it is this addiction that allows us to focus all that general energy of desire on one person. And so we focus it all on one person, and that one person is going to be the one we are going to be united with, the one that is going to be our one flesh, the one with whom we are going to be able to trust and be truly naked and no shame with. The I love you of Christian love 
is other focused and sacrificial. It is about what can I do for you. You know, naked and no shame is a fascinating thing. Most of you are young and tight and taut. You just wait till you get to be 66. Everything that was in Sydney is now kind of in Melbourne. And, you know, you can, I'm smiling because, you know, and you can look at your husband and think, ooh, a new wrinkle. Oh, look, that one wasn't there yesterday or day before. And you know, you know that you can be naked in all your ugliness and, you know, wrinkles and know that that person you're with isn't going to put up a photograph on Facebook the next day with comments to go with it or a YouTube video of what happened. You see, that is naked and no shame. That is covenant commitment. And that is what a marriage gives you. You see, the worldview tells you, I want to be sexual with you as long as you feed my lust, as long as you make me feel good, because love is about me. It's about me feeling good, just as desire meant I will get what I want when I want it. I love you means I lust your body. So we would go through casual sex, one night stands, friends with privileges. Everything that says, I will have a good time with you. Cohabitation, the try before you buy. When you talk, all the research shows us that when you talk to people in cohabitation, the girls are actually hanging out waiting for marriage and the boys are hanging, there for, hanging in there for sex. So, you know, it doesn't work. The research tells us that Couples who have been in cohabited relationships and then get married have much less satisfactory relationships. The research also tells us that if you are engaged and you get married, those who have started sex early in the engagement period, sexual intercourse early, are less likely to have satisfactory relationships after getting married. It's kind of easy to understand why. You know, engagement is supposed to be checking out and getting to know each other. Are you trustworthy for me to trust you? But if you start having sex, how much do you actually have conversation when you're having sex? So if sex is what is driving you and you're not getting to know each other other than to know each other's orgasms, I mean, that's not going to last 10, 20, 30, 40 years into marriage. So there is actually sense behind all the research. We just spend years of studying it. So this is what the world tells us. We need to be very aware that we don't let this seep into our church's mentality because, and this is American research, the statistics for divorce is no different from within the church and outside. And nowhere do we see this lust played out more than in our teens. Teen sexual behavior, this is a 2008 study done by La Trobe University on year 10 to 12 students, over about 3,000. And the majority of young people, 80% had been sexually active in some way. And this had been increasing. 40%, uh, sorry, 80%, four-fifths of them had been in deep kissing which for those of you who may not know, is a first base activity. 
Um, Two-thirds had been genital touching or fingering. I mean, this is education, and that's a second base activity. And 50% have had oral sex, that's giving or taking oral sex, that's third base. And 25% of year 10 and over 50% of year 12 students have had sexual intercourse. Now, that, that's fourth base. Now, we need to remember while we are saying that, that when your teenagers say, everybody's doing it, that is not true. Because 80% of year 10s and 50% of year 12s are not doing it. Can you see that? How the statistics need to be looked at that way. That when young people say everybody's doing it, that's not true either. Although there is a large segment of young people who are having sex. Now, you sit, you're thinking to yourself, you know that crazy love phase? Does that last forever? Well, I'm happy to tell you, actually, if you're newly loved lovers, you're going to say, oh no, doesn't it last forever? It doesn't last for more than 12 to 18 months, maybe two years if you stretch it. Now, having been 39 years married, I'm kind of glad that it didn't last. I do not palpitate when my husband walks in from work. I, might, I would have to increase my hypertensive medication if I did that. Probably have died of a heart attack. But you see, what I feel is not palpitation. What I feel is that wonderful, trusting, committed feeling of being bonded to one man. And you know God gives us a brain mechanism for this too. He gives us oxytocin and vasopressin. When you have sex, the level of oxytocin and vasopressin go up in your brain. And this bonds you to the person you're having sex with. Now, therefore, there is nothing called casual sex. There is nothing called casual sex. Every time you have sex with someone, you bond. So, I tell the young people, you have sex with someone, you're like forming a little super glue bond. And then you tear yourself away. You have sex with someone else, another little super glue. You tear yourself away. You go on like that. When you finally decide to get married, you probably run out of super glue. We are seeing couples who are, you know, like commitment forbes. They don't want to get committed. They finish their super glue bottles. Basically, you're confusing your brain when you move from one sexual act to another. Because we are not created for that. We are given a brain wiring for bonding with sexual activity. You know you have a little oxytocin spike even when you hug someone? There is something in that give your church people, greet each other with a holy kiss. You know, they said you're all here and you have all got a little oxytocin bond here which is kind of really lovely because that's what family is about. When you cuddle your baby, when the baby suckles, oxytocin levels go up. That's what bonds a mother and a father. When you are have making love and you have an orgasm, it goes through the roof and it bonds you, which is great for a sex therapist because we can tell people, have plenty of sex and you will bond. 
And so God gives us this created goodness of marriage. So marriage is good. When you make love, every time you make love in marriage, it's like a sacramental act. You know, you remember the commitment. You remember the covenant every time you make love. Marriage is exclusive. We know that. It is other-focused. We talked about that. It's a state of trust and therefore faithfulness. And it's also complementary in roles and functions. Now, that complementary is kind of not a very popular word. You know, submission, dirty word. But, you know, actually... Nowhere is submission seen better than in the sexual response cycle. I always, this takes a few seconds sometimes. You know, men are like the one switch and women are like these multiple buttons. I sometimes say men are like the microwave, you know, like one switch, quick warm up. And women are like the crock pot or the slow oven, which has to be warmed up before the cake goes in. So, it's fascinating. We are different. You see, men are easily aroused. They are more visual, which is why more porn viewers are men. Porn viewers. Men watch porn. Women read porn. Men are very visual. They're turned on quicker. You ask women, would you like to sit for half an hour watching an erect penis? And that's the reaction I get, because we, we would rather have the action. We rather have the relationship. This is why women read stupid books, because that's porn. It actually is reading porn, just as men watch porn. And I have seen girls who are addicted to reading pornography. And there are websites that now give that sort of little bite-sized written pornography for women. So men are more easily aroused. They follow a fairly linear pattern of being aroused. So they have, they want sex, they get an erection, they have an orgasm, which is an ejaculate. And then I wanted to say they go to sleep, but I'll say they relax. Now women are infinitely more complex. Now, this was researched by a laboratory in Canada, Rosemary Basson, and every woman is going, they need research to tell us that, that we are different. But actually, it is so that women are different. Now, just stay with me here. Many women enter into sexual activity with no real sexual desire. So what they're what we call neutral. So they're not kind of like, not like swinging from the chandelier. But they're going into sex going, I love you. You know, I remember that whenever we cuddle and I, you know, when you're happy and you know you're happy and I feel that intimacy of being with you. And by experience, I know it makes me feel good. So let's make love. You see the difference? The guy's sort of already swinging from the chandelier and she's like, oh, okay, let's do it. But... Once she gets started and he is using all those sacrificial other-oriented ways of knowing what turns her on, and you know those buttons, you know, knowing which one is her button, and then when he does that and romances her, she first starts physiologically responding with the vagina, vaginal wetness, and then the brain kicks in. So it's almost upside down. She goes into sex, 
and then she feels the body responding and then the brain starts lighting up. And that's important for us to recognize. And then the third point is that only about 50% of women have orgasms with sexual intercourse. Many of them can have an orgasms with oral sex or mutual masturbation, but with actual sexual intercourse, only about 50%. Now, why am I stressing this? Why I'm telling you this is that in this pattern which we sexologists have researched, we see the complementarity of male and female. Men are made to lead. You're made to lead with reading the Bible, taking your children, taking everyone to church, doing the prayer time. You are also made to lead in the bedroom. Isn't that exciting? Isn't it exciting that God created man and woman to have a complementary role in lovemaking? That is so exciting to us sexologists. You know, when all the research is put out there, there is this beautiful congruence of the way God created us, male and female. Now, the worldview of marriage. The worldview of marriage tells us fidelity is optional. Remember we talked exclusive, one man, one woman. It, this is in Sydney Morning Herald last year. And it, this sign, I haven't seen it, but some of you might have. Apparently it was up near the airport for some time. Life is short, have an affair. It's a website that is specifically for infidelity, for people to go in and have affairs. Isn't that amazing? You can go there, you put your age, male or female, whether you want a male or a female, and what suburb, and it immediately links you with people in your suburb who also want to have an affair. So fidelity is like, well, you know, optional. And we again need to be so careful that we don't get caught up in that. Because, you see, remember we talked about desire, love, and attachment? You can be attached, that is bonded, in a covenant committed relationship with one person and still feel that spark of desire for another person. You can feel the falling in love dopamine pull to another person. It can happen. But love, as we, as we know, is an emotion but it is also an action. We are not bonobo monkeys or chimpanzees. We are human beings created in the image of God. And therefore, we have control. And it is so important for us to remember this. Otherwise, infidelity becomes something like, oh, you know, God wants me to be happy. God wants you to be faithful. God wants you to live your life, your love life, and otherwise to his glory. And of course the world, the world tells us, especially today, that marriage is about love. Even gender is optional. Now I want to give you a little bit of statistics because this is probably something that many of you would have come, been asked or talked about. This is Australian statistics that tell us that 1.6% uh, of women, uh, men, would say they are gay or homosexual, and only about 1% would say they're bisexual. That only adds up to a little over 2%. And when it comes to women, less than 1% say they're lesbians. Now, this is Australian research from very good sources. 
And so, you know, when people tell you, oh, 10% are homosexual, no, they're not. This is the Australian research. I think it's important that we remember this in today's world when, you know, it's about who cares about gender. Nothing matters. So what we've talked about is desire, love, bonding. There is a chemistry behind it, but we have a choice as to how we deal with it. God has a pattern. The world will challenge you to follow them and to behave as they behave. But we know that our lives are to the glory of God. Our marriages are to image, as in Ephesians 5, to image Christ and his church. So whatever we do, whether we are married, whether we are single and will remain celibate, whatever we do, our lives, our sex lives are lived to be the glory of God. Now, it won't be easy. I'm not promising you an easy life when it's a pure sex life for God's glory. However, when you are single and you choose to remain celibate, you will be treated as a joke because who's doing that? If you're married and you choose to be faithful in thought and in action, you'll be considered a bit of a weirdo. But we can remember that, you know, so it was then in the biblical times and so it will be till Christ comes back. Because we read in 1 Peter, they are surprised that you don't join them and they may heap abuse on you. But we are called to live such lives among the pagans that even when they accuse you, they see what you do, your good deeds and glorify God. Because after all, isn't that what it's all about, finally? And since you're studying the Song of Songs, I had to leave you with a little cartoon on the Song of Songs. This is to compensate for the long-distance relationship. When he was on business, he would engage in playful marital phone conversation. Okay, if you're a palm tree, then I'll climb and Sherpa, climb a mountain and I'll take hold of your, you know, so you're going to be reading Psalm of Song of Songs and you're going to be doing a lot more of this very erotic biblica. So that's my content. If anyone would like to contact me, I'm happy for you to email me or follow me on Twitter. It's not terribly exciting what I put on Twitter, but, you know, you're welcome to join me on Twitter. And that's my second name, by the way, Kamalini, supposed to mean lotus flower. Anyway, so I'm happy for you to contact me if you have any questions. So we've, this is all the formal presentation, and now we'll take our break for tea and coffee and question time. We on there. Thank you, Patricia. Um, a text message number is going to go on the screen along with my email. So if you've got questions that you feel a bit too embarrassed to ask, uh, feel free to text them through or email them through uh, and I won't repeat who has sent them. <laughs> this one's been sent by Rory. Isn't it? We've got a few Rorys here, haven't we, Rory? <laughs> so I will keep it anonymous. Um, so feel free to text me uh, or email me in the break. And then we're going to stop now and have a cup of tea or coffee at the back, have a biscuit, and we'll be back in about 10, 15 minutes. Happy to talk to anyone and if you want, you want to, to come talk down the during front. coffee.
come on down the front and have a chat to Patricia. And it's worth saying, in the break, there is a book on sale by Patricia. It's called Teen Sex by the Book, if I can recommend it for anyone who's got younger children. Uh, It is also the genesis of what our high school group will be doing in Term 2. Patricia's written a curriculum for youth groups to work through on sexuality and they kick that off in a couple of weeks. So if parents are here wanting to have a look at some of the material, this would be a very good indicator. I've also got one other book I'll talk about afterwards. But let's stop, have a break. If you want to come and say hi and have a question down the front, do do that.